Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your goodness, your grace, and your love for us. We thank you, Lord, again, that you are sovereign and that you are actively involved in every aspect of our lives. We thank you, Lord, that nothing by accident ever happens. And even though, Lord, there are things that take place that we don't understand, uh, there are things that take place that uh, we are ignorant of, Father, we have absolute and full confidence in you. And as a result of that, Father, we are greatly comforted. And so, Father, we pray that you be with our brother Tim and his family as they travel to Lexington. We ask, Lord, you would keep them safe on the roads. Father, we also ask that as they meet with the church in various capacities, various groups and committees, that you would guide and direct the conversations, that, Lord, that you would lead all those that are involved in this process, uh, that you would bless Tim as he preaches the word, and that it would be profitable to those that are there. And then, Father, we ask that as they prepare for the vote and take the vote, that your will will be done. And Father, though we are uh, sad at the prospect of them leaving, uh, Father, we know also that um, you desire your word to be taught and for your people to be shepherded. And Father, we believe that you've called him to do this. So Father, we thank you for that. Father, we also ask for your blessing today as we open your word and we pray that you'll give us understanding. We pray, Lord, that you would give to us a very strong desire uh, to be shaped by your word that we may be more like Christ in all that we do and all that we say, and again, in the way that we think. We do thank you for these things and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I'll begin reading in verse 2, and it reads this way. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or to shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman... Uh, was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God." So we're going to deal with some main parts of this, which I trust will be very helpful in trying to figure out not just why this was here, because obviously this was written because this church was having difficulty. I guess the real question is, why was this preserved? Because it was preserved for us to read. What are we supposed to draw from, these, from this passage and this issue that Paul is dealing with? J.B. Lightfoot says this, because what we're dealing with here is Christian behavior in worship. That's what, that's what Paul's talking about, is what is going on in worship. That's, that's the issue that's taking place here. 
uh, even though we're, we'll be dealing with the hero and all of that uh, in a moment. That's what he's talking about. And so J.B. Lightfoot says this, Christian behavior in worship uh, is what's being talked about and what should it express? Christian behavior should express the nature of Christ, the character of Christ, and the humility of Christ. So we don't always think about those things when we gather together for worship. When we gather together, we see each other and, and you know, we spend time talking. We know we're here to worship the Lord and we, we sing hymns and we sing songs and we open the Bible and we hear a sermon. But we're not always thinking in terms of what is our collective behavior supposed to reflect. Because it's, it's more than just what's going on for us individually. It's more, that, it's more than just the idea that we're kind of together when we sing. It's more than just the idea that we feel good uh, when we leave. The idea is, have we emulated Christ in what we have done and the way that we've done it? In other words, do people see the, the nature of Christ and how we relate to each other and how we relate to God? Do they see the character of Christ in our behavior? And also, do they see the humility of Christ? So because Paul devotes so much time and space to this issue, then we, we need to see it as being very serious. This is not just some passing thing. We should not just simply dismiss it as being outdated uh, or an outdated discussion on whether or not men or women should wear head coverings. So here we go. Here's the first thing. And what I want to deal with is head coverings for men. And the reason why I say that is because sometimes you say, well, wait a minute, is that even a thing? You know, there's, there's no discussion where well, there is. If you look at verse 4 and verse 7, it says this. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. So what was it that would cause Paul to write this? What was going on? Why were they, like, why would they, why would they have their heads covered anyway? What, what, what's happening? So let me give you some historical background. There'll be a lot of that today. And I really believe that's going to help us to grasp the issues that Paul is dealing with. So during this time, Caesar Augustus was in power and he was all about promoting himself. At every turn, it was all about him. And that included promoting himself as being the imperial head over religious affairs. And when you read through the history of Rome, you see this more and more with the Caesars, the great power, the great political power they had, the great military power they had, it wasn't enough. They wanted more. And they wanted to move in the area of religion. And I believe the main reason why they wanted to move in the area of religion is because what it did eventually lead to was the idea that you should also offer Caesar worship. Most men, because uh, most of the dictators throughout history have been men, most of those that are dictators, the totalitarian type of leaders, no matter how strong their political power, no matter how great their military might, you'll notice that when you read their biographies that there's still this unrest. They're not satisfied, no matter how great their power. They want the power of life and death. They want the power of a God. They want to be God. That's why, that's one of the reasons why there's so much bloodshed uh, during any kind of a reign of a dictator because he wants to have absolute rule and authority. The idea is that God has the right to grant life and grant death. They exercise that because the desire is to be 
God-like, to feel like God. And of course, what comes close to that, a very close second, is the idea of worship and, and, and adulation. And even with that, if they were to receive that, sometimes they're still not satisfied because normally the way they're going to receive that kind of worship is by threat. If you don't bow down to me, I will cut off your head. And so people bow down to them. But it's, just, it's unsatisfying to them because they want people to love them. That's what they want. They want people to love them when they worship them. That's what they want. And of course, you can't force that in that kind of a situation. And so it's always empty for them. So kind of keep that in mind that when it comes to Caesar Augustus, he's like every other dictator uh, in that sense. So Caesar then, he had a lot of statues that were, that were erected throughout the empire and they portrayed him with, a, with his toga pulled up over his head. So the toga was kind of this robe-like thing they would wear, a lot of loose cloth, and it would allow the individual to take part of it, kind of like a hood, uh, almost like a hoodie, for those of you that are younger, but you could kind of pull it up over your head. And he had a lot of those erected with, with that stance, and the reason was is that's what he would do in the various temples. Now, there was a reason why he would do that, because that, that was a posture that showed him as being the one who was offering the sacrifice to whatever God was being worshipped at that time. In other words, you were kind of in a position of a priest. You were in a position of power. You represented uh, the people to God. You represented God to the people, whatever gods they were worshipping. And so you kind of had, you were kind of up front. You were the one that was in charge. You were the one that was doing all of those things. And so you were kind of the, the center of attention. And so he was the one who would then be seen as presiding over whatever Roman ritual that was taking place uh, in a pagan worship service or in a pagan event. So again, the pulling of the toga over your head would always indicate that you had a le leading role in whatever pagan rite took place. Uh, it was not a very common posture for those who were participating. In other words, there's the, if you want to call it a congregation, as they came, they would not take on that posture. The only one who would do that would be the one who was leading. And because the emperor did that, then many of those that were kind of wealthy, those who were powerful, those who were considered to be part of the upper class, they would mimic that behavior when they were involved in a pagan ritual. In other words, if they would go to the temple and let's say the emperor wasn't there, then that's whoever was the, I guess, at least thought they were number one, that would be the position they would take. That would be the posture they would take. They would mimic what the emperor would do. And so that was, that, that's this idea. So, that's, so when you go back and you read what Paul is writing about, that's what's, that's what's in his mind. That's what these people in the Rome had been seeing was Caesar Augustus throwing this toga over his head and taking on that posture. So then, if a Christian man took that posture in a Christian worship service, he was mimicking the pagan ritual behavior that he saw and he was dishonoring his head. Who's his head? It's Christ. He was dishonoring Christ because he was copying what was going on in the pagan ritual. So if the unbeliever came in and he was to see what was going on visually, he wouldn't be able to tell the difference between a Christian worship service and a pagan ritual because to him, they look exactly the same. They look exactly the same. And of course, the idea then is the focus would be on that man who has his head covered because he's the one who's kind of leading the thing. And that's why when, when we gather together, what we need to remember is, and this is important, 
That's why we want to make sure when we worship Christ that everything we do is distinctively Christian, that everything we do points to Christ, that it points to the good news about Christ, that it points to the person and the work of Christ. That's why uh, when, when Paul went around and set up elders in churches, there's not one man who's the dictator. There's not one man who's in charge because there's only one head of the church. It's Jesus Christ. And so we want to make sure that's always the case. So now, there may be certain individuals, as we know, when you kind of work your way through a worship, there are certain individuals who are more prominent. Uh, it's not because they're the focus, but it's kind of how you know, leadership works. You know, when Robert's up here or Sean's up here leading worship, leading the music, you know, we need someone to either be hearing someone sing or watch their hands so we can kind of stay together and we don't have chaos uh, when we're singing. So they're more prominent at that time, but the focus isn't on them. The focus is on the words, on the music, and who it is that we're singing to. Uh, for centuries, even to this day, when it comes to the actual the buildings that we worship in, uh, for most of us, there's, we have an empty cross. Why is there an empty cross? Well, because what that reminds us of is the life that Christ lived, that he was sacrificed on the cross for us, this, our sins were laid on him and he was punished and he experienced the wrath of God. Then he was taken down, buried, and rose again. And so the emphasis, even though there is an empty cross, it still reminds us of a risen Savior. That's why it's that way. I've mentioned to you many times before that there's a reason why uh, in almost all Protestant churches, even though not every single one of them, but you have some kind of a pulpit, it's always in the middle of the platform. Why? Because the reading and the preaching of the Word of God is to be central. It's not what we call, you know, some churches call the sacraments. We call it the ordinances. It's not that. It is, it is the Word. And so that's why it is in the center of the building. It's not that we worship the Bible, but we are uh, giving reverence to the Word of God. God has spoken. And so that's why we take what goes on here and what takes, takes place in the pulpit uh, very, very seriously. That's why I'm not called a priest. That's never been my title. That would never be my function. In fact, uh, what most Protestant churches are known for, at least especially after the time of Reformation, was teaching the priesthood of believers. And that is, 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 that, is that we as individuals are able to come to Christ. We are able to, we are able to approach God. We don't need a human uh, being to mediate for us, to, 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 to approach God for us. You don't need me to do that for you. Because Christ has redeemed you and you are now a son of God. And you are able, you are able to approach the throne of grace in your time of need. It doesn't mean that I won't pray for you, but you don't need me. It's not like you come and talk to me and then go do your thing and then I do that for you. And so again, all the things that we do then here are all done to point to Christ, to point to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the work that I would do would be the work of a shepherd. Maybe, maybe it's better said an under-shepherd, but I'm never to be one who's to be central. All right? So it's, this is not Bob's church. All right? It's never to be referred to uh, in that way. Uh, all the churches would, would be the same. Even though there may be minor differences in them, wherever you go throughout the world, when you go into a Christian worship service, it's always going to be about Christ. There's always going to be certain elements that are the same. When I was in, in church in South Africa, when I was in church in Romania, uh, when I was in church in Hungary, uh, uh, it's always the same. There's the singing of hymns about God. Uh, there was always praying to, uh, to God in the name of Christ. 
there is always a reading from the Word of God. There's always a preaching from the Word of God. There's always a time of prayer uh, and a time of fellowship. It's always the same wherever you go. The orders may be a little different, and they may have a few traditions that are different, but in the end, it's all pretty much the same. It's about Christ. And they all want to make sure that they, they do nothing that mimics the pagan world. When I was in Mauritius, because there was a very strong Muslim presence there, one of the things that was unique about, and there are not very many church buildings in Mauritius. Uh, there was a couple homes that have been converted. There was one, I was only in one church that was actual, what we would call a sanctuary that was dedicated uh, to, uh, to Christian worship. But in all of the churches, there were, you would never find any religious symbols in any of them. And it wasn't because they were afraid of any kind of oppression. But the reason why that they were doing that is they want to be very careful to make sure that uh, the Muslims understood that they, as Christians, did not worship idols. And, and it was understood by the Muslims that if, if there was a cross... And, and front and center like this, then they would just assume that we're worshiping that piece of wood. And, and there in Mauritius, that's why it was, you know, the, the Muslims, they viewed, uh, there were about, I guess there were about maybe 50,000 Catholics. Yeah, about 50,000 Catholics there. And the Catholics there all had shrines and statues. And so the Muslims viewed the Catholics as, just, as, as like any other uh, pagans. The Muslims said, well, they, they worship idols. And so the Protestant Christians were very careful to make sure that they would not be accused of that because that would kind of muddy up an understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the idea here then, the general thing that Paul is getting at, is we want to make sure that what we do is always Christian, that it's, that it's always going to be pointing to Christ. We don't want to mimic the world. We may do some things that the world does, uh, but we don't want to mimic the world. We want, the, we want church to be different. All right, that's the idea. It needs to be different because of what we're doing here. So, uh, in fact, that's why our worship service should be different from every other thing we involve our, 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 ourselves in. Then the next thing is head coverings for women, which is primarily really wives. Uh, look at verse 5. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. So when it comes to some of the background here, what we read today was from the ESV. I believe the ESV makes the right distinction uh, in these verses because it keeps referring to the wife. If you're reading, to a, if you're reading from a King James Version, a New King, a New King James Version, or a New American Standard, they all use the word woman instead of wife. Now, the word that's used there, the Greek word, which is gune, it can be translated woman. That's not improper, but I believe that it's most often, from what I've read in some of the other theological dictionaries, it's more often used for wife, and that's what it's really talking about, is the wife. And, of course, a, a woman who's married is the only one who has a head or a husband. So that would make sense in the context. So the idea here, then, is the ESV has it correct that it's talking about the wife. And of course, back in that culture, uh, in the, in, during the time of the early church, a girl was considered to become a woman at age 14 and was usually married shortly thereafter. So a little different than what we have going on today. I don't know very many families that want their 14-year-old daughters to get married. Uh, but nonetheless, of course, now that's very, still very common in the Middle East. Um, this, and now here's the thing that I, that I thought was interesting. The central moment in a Roman marriage ceremony was called the veiling 
of the bride. And when she was being married to whoever she was being married to, they would put the veil on her. In American weddings, you take the veil off. But in that wedding, the veil goes on when she gets married because it was a social indicator that she was now married. Uh, and uh, why was that important? Well, because the norm in the Roman culture was for the wife to dress very modestly. And um, it was a little different with, with the men and other women the men would hang out with. That's, again, in the pagan culture. So let me read to you some things from Plutarch. Uh, he was a philosopher during the time of the early church, born somewhere around 50 A.D. Uh, they think he died around 119 A.D. He may have been born a little later than that. But nonetheless, he said this. Foreign women will be brought in and at a dinner party after serving food and drink, these women will be offered to the guest. These women at these parties wore no veil and they were not necessarily slaves, though some may have been. When a man was seen in public with an unveiled woman, it signaled that she was not his wife, but a banquet woman. And so again, what you want to keep in mind then is that to be unveiled was, I guess, in a way, kind of advertising or letting everyone know that not only were you unmarried, but that you were probably some kind of a prostitute. You may have been a slave, may that have been a slave, but that was kind of what that revealed to the entire culture. So keep, keep this in mind, though, that a majority of, of Christian worship during the early church, and maybe uh, all of it, uh, took place in someone's home. There really wasn't like a sanctuary, like, again, what we're accustomed to. So you would go to someone's home and in the home, the wife was not expected to wear the veil. And her friends, once they entered the house, could take their veil off. So those with no veil were clearly not only friends with the homeowner's wife, but were of the same social class. So if you have a congregation coming into a large home for worship, and if the woman of the house would take her veil off and then her friends would take her, their veils off, it might cause division because this group was saying, yeah, we're with her over here. We can take our veil off. You can't. And they wouldn't be saying that, but that would kind of be the idea. It would kind of put people on the spot in that way. So then when it came to the actual church service, and if a woman was to read scripture or to pray uh, with her veil off, um, that act of worship would become an occasion for segregation rather than unification. Now you do have a lot throughout the New Testament when Paul talks about worship, a great deal about unification is brought up. And again, the idea uh, with that is because the church was so unique compared to all the other religions. Remember that in the early church, and it's always been this way, that you would have those who were slaves and those who were free who would gather together as equals to worship. You would also have those who were very wealthy and those who were extremely poor gathering together and worshiping as equals. That didn't happen anywhere else. There was no other religion that did that. In fact, Christianity was the only religion that even talked about such a thing as morals, how you should treat each other. The other religions didn't care. As long as you put the money in and make some kind of sacrifice, it was all good. And so there was no instruction about how to, to live your life in a way that would honor whatever gods you were worshiping. You know, you just want to make them happy if they were upset by the sacrifice you would make or whatever, whatever it happened to be. So here, when it came to the church and when they would come together and they would go to somebody's home, uh, it, you know, the idea of being one and understanding how things are to be done was a really big deal. 
to make sure that everybody understood that everyone was in need of a savior. All those who were saved were saved the same way. All of those who were saved were going to the same heaven. Uh, that the Lord is going to reward those uh, in heaven, not based on class, not based on ethnicity, not based on any other kind of social distinction, but based on their, the, the work they did for the Lord. And so, they, in fact, it was uh, what was one of the most unusual things about the Christian church is that in some cases, the pastor would be a slave. And there would be freed men who would be in the congregation. And the slave would be the one who would be preaching and declaring the word of God. He would be the one who might even be pastoring the church. And so that was just a, a whole new world to uh, a lot of individuals uh, there in various cities, and especially here in Rome. So again, those with no veil were clearly not only friends with the homeowners, but again, they were of often the same social class. So again, when a woman in worship unveiled herself, she was not only mimicking pagan behavior herself, because again, in many of the pagan rituals, you would have unveiled women there, because a lot of the temples did have prostitutes. It's another way they would make money uh, to uh, sustain the, the priesthood and whatnot. It was also then seen as a rejection of the Christian teaching on marriage. And again, the Christian teaching on marriage was very unique uh, during that time. Because it was very common for a man, uh, not only to have, again in the pagan society, for a man to have a wife, and he was free to do whatever he wanted with his slaves and other women. It didn't really matter. He could do whatever he wanted. Well, Christianity, again, had something to say about almost every aspect of life, and definitely had something to say about the relationship between a man and a wife. And that relationship was to be what? Exclusive. The other pagan religions didn't teach that. They were encouraging, basically, promiscuity, unfaithfulness, because that was how they would make some of their extra money. So the Christian, the, the, everything that was going on in, in the Christian worship service was, was, again, very uniquely different and, and always pointed back to Christ. And so, you know, you could ask a man, why are you so faithful to your wife? Well, it's because I'm a Christian. I love God. And God has said that I should do this and this and this. Asking a woman, you know, why, why, why are you faithful to your husband? Why aren't you doing this? You know, you're... you're Husband is upper class, so you're free to do whatever you want. Well, it's because the Bible said this, because Christ has said this. It's always to be that way. So that's why in verse 3, Paul says this, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So again, worship and exclusive relationships is what Paul is talking about here. God is the head of Christ, because Christ bears the mark of exclusive relationship to God. Christ is the head of the Christian man for the same reason, and the husband likewise for the wife. Now remember that what he's talking about here, this, uh, um, you know, this submission and, and the exclusive relationship, this is not a power thing for the man over the woman. What this really, I think, is going to be emphasizing is the spiritual responsibility that the man has for his family. Now his family may not follow, but he has a responsibility to be Christ-like and to do things in, in a very particular way. And, and he's doing things here in the worship to honor Christ. And then also the woman is to do things in such a way to honor Christ. It's all about that and not about anything else. So that's why a Christian man should not cover his head. When he does, he looks like a pagan. And he's also refusing to show his subservience to Christ because he's making it about him and not about Christ. And so he covers his sign of a relationship to Christ. A woman, on the other hand, should not cover her head. I mean, should cover her head 
The veil is a sign of her exclusive relationship to her husband. The taking off of her veil suggests that her relationship to her husband is less than exclusive. The exact same thing that happens to a man's relationship to Christ when he puts a veil on. So let me read to you a couple of passages of scripture uh, in relating to worship and how we should be thinking about worship and what the focus of worship should be. Because that's what he's been getting at here, again, is, is that aspect. First Chronicles chapter 29, beginning in verse 11, it reads this way. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. And then in Ephesians 3, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And then in Revelation 5, it reads, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And so what we then should be engaging in when we gather together for worship is that our only concern is to give Christ all of the glory and praise that he rightly deserves. We need to ensure that when it comes to the way that we dress, when it comes to our attitude, when it comes to what we do as far as even the mechanics of worship, is that we are to do nothing that detracts from Christ. We are to do nothing that would mimic the pagan world. In other words, we don't want to do certain things because ooh, when the world does this, like, you know, let's say that there's a... Uh, Let's say there was a Mormon church down the road, and when they, when they prayed, they did a certain thing. We go, oh, that was really powerful. We need to do that. No, we don't need to do that. Because we don't want to mimic them. They, they don't know the gospel. They don't know Christ. They're, they're, what they're worshiping uh, is false. And so we want to make sure that we keep it that way. And that means that there'll be times when there'll be some tension within a group of believers as we try to figure that out. Because... No matter how many times we try to, to tweak the worship service, there's always going to be some things that some people like and some people don't like. We want to get back to the basic message. But that always begins with us as individuals to make sure that we bring the right attitude, the right desire. And so if, if any of us, whether it's me or someone else, wants to be the front and center, uh, that's the wrong attitude. There's no humility there. There's no character of Christ. We want to make sure it's about him. So that when we leave here together, we then should be encouraged and we should be strengthened because we have focused our attentions on and worshiped Christ. And we feel like we have done him justice. We have done our duty with joy and love. And as a result, he will continue to work on our hearts and lives and change us and use us for his glory in our day-to-day -day activities. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, again, we thank you so much, Lord, for your goodness. And we thank you, Father, for the message that Paul has given us, this um, uh, instruction that he's given to the Corinthians to help them, Father, to work their way through some of the difficulties that they were having.
Lord, we're not sure that if all of them were aware that they were simply just mimicking pagans and, and taking the focus off of Christ, but Lord, they were warned by, in this passage that they were doing that. Father, we ask you would help us as we think about ourselves as individuals and about ourselves collectively, that we always would do those things that please and glorify you, and that in our worship of you, it will always be distinctively Christian. It will be that which distinctively reveals the gospel of Jesus Christ, distinctly reveals the results of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Lord, as those who have been forgiven by you, we say thank you. We bow before you, Father, in submission to your word and ask that you teach us that we, that we may follow suit. Thank you, Father, for being here with us this morning and for accepting our flawed worship of you. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.